Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Beginning in verse number one, reading through verse number 12 of Luke chapter 24, it says this. On the first day of the week, and the first day of the week being Sunday, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now they, we know from the book of John and other, part, and other gospel accounts, Matthew and, and, and Mark, we know that those are three women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and another Mary, and another woman named Salome. And so they went looking for Jesus, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and they bowed down to the ground. They said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. Some of the most hopeful words, victorious words in all of scripture. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and then rise on the third day. He's like, don't you remember him talking about all this? And then they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11, uh, to the 11 and to all of the rest who were somehow gathered together. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. <laughs> Guys, have we ever gotten in trouble for not believing women the first time? Right? I don't mean to be sexist, just be real, Right? Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. And when he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. But he went away, and so he went away amazed at what had happened. Lord Jesus, this morning, as it is every moment that we are able to pray, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you. For the, for, for the simple fact that you are God, but also for the fact that you are alive to hear our prayers. Thank you for this account that is not just a, a story. It's not just a fairy tale. It is a true account of true events. And this truth trumps it all. This truth changes everything. I pray this morning that as I have the privilege and the opportunity to stand here and to preach this sacred message, that you would help me die to myself, that it would not be me, that it would be you that speaks today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And the church said, Amen. So as we're reading through this text, this is just one of four different texts that accounts for the resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the resurrection because it is such an important event. No shade on Matthew and Mark, but we're going to look at Luke and John's account this morning. Matthew and Mark are great, but I just chose to look at Luke and John this morning um, in our passages. But I just want to pause for a second this morning and just acknowledge that Jesus Christ is risen. We've acknowledged it several times, but we can't acknowledge it enough. And this is the factor that separates Christianity from all other religions, all other faith systems, all other ideologies that are out there today. 
Today, if you are part of a world religion, you can go and possibly see a memorial of your religious icon. But it is just that. It's a memorial. It's not an empty tomb like Jesus Christ. The tomb today, if you want to go and see the place where Jesus' body laid, you won't find the body. You won't find a memorial to his body because his body is not there. He is alive today and he is alive forevermore. That's what separates Christianity. Christianity is not just some simple new approach to morality. It's not just something that is a cultural thing or some special insight into the nature of the origin of the universe. It's not even a dead ancient religion that people someday, that people long ago observed. The heart and the soul and the core of Christianity is that a dead man walked out of his grave. That doesn't happen every day, right? Matter of fact, this was the only day it ever happened. And the other times that it was recorded that it happened, Lazarus and others that were raised from the dead, Jesus was involved in those resurrections too. Because only Jesus has the power to raise from the dead. Because of the resurrection, this book that we hold in our laps or have on our phones or is on our screen because of the resurrection, this is trustworthy. This can be believed. This can be held to Because of the resurrection, every word of worship that we uttered to him in song this morning, even though some of them may have been off time or in the wrong place, I apologize for that. Every word that we uttered in worship was relevant and deserved by him. And because this resurrection, the curse of sin is broken and the curse of death is broken, if you will come to him and you will believe, and that right there is the kicker sometimes, isn't it? If I will come to him and if I will believe. We hear this story so much today in our, in our Judeo-Christian type of culture. We hear about Easter and we hear about if you're raised in the church, you grew up learning about Easter, man, coloring page after coloring page and the tomb looks different every time, but it's always empty, isn't it? We know this story backwards and forwards, but sometimes we're still left a little skeptical about it. Because it seems a little far-fetched. It seems like a fairy tale. It may be an endearing fairy tale to you, like the Easter Bunny or like the Tooth Fairy or like Santa Claus at Christmas. It may be something that we just, we look at and we think back and it makes us nostalgic for family dinners and for Easter egg hunts at our family's house. But church, I want to remind you that none of that exists if Jesus is not alive. None of that. But for some people, for the skeptic, they think it's just a fairy tale. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to believe. You want to believe. Maybe you feel like you believed at one time, but you're struggling to continue believing because you're looking around and you see the hurt in the world and you see the suffering in the world and you see the death in the world and you're thinking, how can a risen Savior, how can a living God allow these things to take place? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're searching. Maybe you've just got questions and you've come to church this morning or you've tuned in today because you're looking for some answers and you're looking for a way to make all of this stuff make sense. How does the story of a dead man 2,000 years ago walking out of a tomb, how does that impact my life today and how does that give me hope and why does it have the staying power of over 2,000 years? Why does it still have that staying power today? You're trying to put your finger on it. You know there's something missing in your life. And so you're just wondering, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe he's the missing piece. But let's be honest. We struggle sometimes with things that seem too good to be true, right? And even as believers, it sometimes seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Have you ever heard that from a skeptic before when you're talking to him about your faith? You mean to tell me you believe that fairy tale? It seems too good to be true. We struggle with stuff like that. Because we've all been exposed to things that were too good to be true, right? 
Like that, uh, like that, we've all gotten that email from that prince far, far away who is like, everybody's coming after him and he needs to like secure all of his money. So he'll just like, what he's willing to do and he's emailed you, the one person in the world that can help him, that he wants to transfer all of his millions and his treasure into your bank account and you can keep 30 million of it if you'll just hide his money for it. All you need to do right now is just send him your social security number and your bank account number and you'll be helping this prince out, right? Everybody ever got that email? Yeah, we, we get those emails, right? And it was funny. Sometimes I like to go through my spam folder and see all those emails that come in. Friday alone, I turned down somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 million from like five different pe- people that were in royal families who needed to get rid of their money. I mean, those poor royals that are in so much trouble, right? Right? We know about things that are too good to be true, right? We know about those things that we know about people who will advertise something and then you don't read the fine print and find out the deal wasn't as good as you thought it, as it looked to be, right? See, for a lot of people, this notion of too good to be true is what keeps you struggling with Christianity. Because you look at it and you say, I'll never get, I never get anything good for free, much less I'll never get eternal life for free. It's got to cost me something, or it's not even possible to have that. The fact that a man came from heaven, and as as the Bible says, that he was not just a man, but he was God, and at the same time, he was 100% man, wrapped in human flesh, that he lived perfectly without without committing a sin, without even having a sinful thought, died after being falsely accused, and then rose back to life three days later, all of a sudden, he's laying in the tomb, he's been beaten, he's bled out, he's died of suffocation on the cross, and all of a sudden, after three days, he managed to hulk out in some way and move a big boulder away and take down two Roman assassins and run off naked somewhere because he left his clothes behind. You mean to tell me that that is, and because that happened 2,000 years ago, it means something to me today, and it means something to me for eternity. I mean, come on, Marvel can't even make that kind of stuff up, right? See, here's the thing. If we struggle to believe or at some time we struggle with our faith, maybe even wondering, maybe not wondering whether God rose from the dead, but maybe we wonder that that God who rose from the dead, whether he can make our bank account make end at the end of the month. Because sometimes you're really hoping, man, if that prince doesn't give me that 30000000 million, I'm in trouble. Or you sit there and you hear the cancer diagnosis and you wonder, okay, where's that resurrection power now? Or you lose a child. Or you lose a spouse. And you're wondering, okay, where's that guy who came out of the tomb? Where's he at? Why didn't he stop that from happening? And you wonder, is it all too good to be true? If you struggle with that or have ever struggled with that at at one point in your life, our text this morning tells us that you're in good company. You're not alone. Because here's something that we have to understand. Every single disciple, every single follower of Christ, when Jesus rose from the dead, struggled with the truth of it. Every single one. We look sometimes at the victory of the story and the awesomeness of the story, but we sometimes overlook just how hard it was for them, even the ones who had followed with Jesus, to believe it. Those who had been the closest to him struggled with it. When the women came into the tomb and saw that it was empty and they came to tell the apostles, we see how they responded. Look at Luke 24 verse 11. Look at how the apostles responded when the women, who by the way were, the Bible says, perplexed when they saw the empty tomb too. They came back and they told the men, they said, in verse number 11 says, these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the women. Homing in on those words, it seemed like nonsense. And it said they did not believe. 
Every single follower of Christ in the gospel struggled with the reality of his resurrection. Every single last one of them. Those that were closest to him, those who saw his miracles, those who heard his voice, those who ate the fish and the loaves and they kept on multiplying. They saw him walk on the water. They heard him say more than once, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again after three days. Yet when Sunday came, the women didn't go looking for a resurrection. They went looking for a dead body to embalm. The apostles refused to believe it. When the women came to tell them, they didn't believe. And it wasn't just because they were women. It was because they struggled. But here's the, here's the point as well. Sometimes we're tempted to think that Bible accounts of these people back in those days, that they are a little bit more gullible or they're a little even maybe a little bit more spiritual than we are today. Like they don't have all the scientific evidence in front of them and everything, but people back then, they struggled with the idea of resurrection just like we do because resurrection didn't happen back then either. Matter of fact, they were exposed to the reality of death a whole lot more than we are. They saw people crucified. They saw family members die. They probably were exposed to more of the reality of death by the age of 12 than any of us ever were by, at any point in our life combined. They saw people murdered. They saw people beaten under Roman oppression. They walked past crosses and saw criminals hanging on them, clinging to life and then giving their life up. They were, they were very astute on the reality of death and none of those people that they saw die ever came back to life. So it seemed like an impossibility to them. They knew that dead meant dead. They knew that. Verse one of our text tells us that the women that went to the tomb, they didn't believe either. It says they came to the tomb and they were bearing spices. Right? We're not talking like Lowry's all-purpose seasoning salt or like Dano's uh, or Hidden Valley Ranch powder. Can we give God some glory for Hidden Valley Ranch powder? No calories, but all the flavor, right? We're not talking about those kind of spices. We're not talking about basil and oregano. We're talking about spices that were used in ancient times to embalm a body and to prepare them for death. Because when Jesus died, they had to rush to just get him in the tomb before Saturday hit and the, the, day of, uh, the day of the Sabbath when it would have been against the law to do any of this. So they waited till early Sunday morning, the very first time they could come to embalm the body and give him respect. See, they didn't come today, that day to the tomb looking for a resurrection. They came to the tomb that day looking for closure. It had been a fun ride with Jesus. He was a leader unlike any other. When he looked at them, he looked at them in a way that could pierce their soul. But now he was gone. It was time to remember him fondly, but it was time to move on. That's why they came to the tomb. Even Mary Magdalene, who is like, you know, right up there with people that we respect in scripture. She still struggled. She saw the empty tomb. She came back and she told the apostles. And then she came back again when James and John go running to the tomb. And it tells us that she went back to the tomb and couldn't go in. And she stood outside crying and mad and angry, still convinced that someone had taken Jesus's body. Matter of fact, there's this scene in John where Jesus appears to her and he's the first, she's the first one that he shows up to. And he says to her, Woman, why are you crying? And he, he, she thinks in her tears and all of this, she thinks it's the gardener. She doesn't expect that it's Jesus. Why? Because she's still angry. She still doesn't believe. She still thinks that somebody took the body. And she says, if you've taken the body, tell me where he is. That'll all change in just a minute. We're going to look at that in just a second. But she struggled as well. And, and let me say this too. The fact that the women were the first ones to discover the reality of the resurrection is very significant, okay? It's not just because, well, they were there doing, you know, doing what women do and, you know, with the body and everything. No, the fact that 
it's noted that women were the first ones to see and the, were the first ones to bear witness of the resurrection is very significant. Because back in those days in Roman culture and in Jewish culture specifically, in a court of law, even the testimony of a hundred women together did not bear truth because it was believed that women were prone to hysteria and to laughable things. A woman could not give testimony in a court of law and be believed. The testimony of a woman was not foundational. So here's the thing. Why would Luke, if all of this is just a contrived fairy tale and just some contrived project to try to fleece people for generations, if they were just trying to make this story up, why would the apostle Luke choose to tell us that women were the first ones to bear witness of the testimony, knowing that the culture would not accept a woman's testimony? It's because it really happened. Why didn't he choose and say, if it's just a lie and it's just made up that Jesus rose from the dead, why wouldn't he say that, you know, an elite kind of religious figure gave, gave credence to the, tes to the testimony of the resurrection? It's a nod. It's God's way of sending us a message that the resurrection is not a fairy tale, that the resurrection is true and is to be believed. Peter, not just the women were confused by it, but Peter, the apostle, was dazed and confused by it. If we look at verse number 12, it says that when he walked out, when he walked out of the tomb, after going in the tomb and seeing the empty tomb, when he walked out, he saw the cloth and he saw the linen. And it says he went out way amazed at what had happened. In the original Greek, it means that he was stupefied or he was dazed and he was confused, wondering what all of it meant. Seeing the empty tomb, seeing the, seeing the cloth laying there, he still walked away scratching his head going, okay, what's going on here? John, though, I think is interesting. And this is for this, we need to turn over to John chapter 20. In John's gospel, we get a little bit more understanding of how things went down when they went to the tomb. John chapter 20, verses 3 through 4, right after the women show up to the apostles, you know, in, in Luke, it tells us that Peter got up and he ran to the tomb and he stooped and he looked in. But we get a little bit more detail of what else happened from John. It says in John chapter 20, verse 3, and at that, at the women's testimony, Peter and the other disciple, being John, the one who wrote it, the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. It says the two were running together, but the other apostle outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Now, you may wonder why is that significant that John beats Peter to the tomb? Guys, you know why this is significant, right? Because if you're in a race and you win the race and you're writing a book that's going to be immortalized for eternity, you want it recorded that you beat somebody in a race, right? That's why it's significant. Now, it's a little bit more significant than that, actually. It's seen in verse number, number five. Here's the significance. So John beats Peter to the tomb, right? I mean, he's outrun Peter. John comes to the tomb, it says, he stoops down at the door of the tomb he sees the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So John beats Peter to the tomb. He sees the grave clothes, but he doesn't go in. Why doesn't he go in? Is it because after beating Peter, he chose that one moment to just kind of bend down and take a rest? Is it because he's trying to like rub it into Peter? Nana, nana, boo, boo, I beat you to the tomb, tomb. No. He stops and he sees this. It's because he stops short and I picture him just kind of standing back and putting his back against the door of the tomb and thinking, am I going to allow myself to believe this? Am I going to allow myself to hold out hope that Jesus is really alive? He stops there and he thinks this is too good to be true. And am I going to allow myself to entertain this thought? We have to remember about John. John was the only disciple who witnessed personally the crucifixion. He was at the foot of the cross when Jesus bled and died and drew his last, death, last breath. John was experiencing what we would call today severe PTSD and grief. 
And so for him to even consider this thought in his immense grief after the terror that he saw just three days ago was too much for him to bear. He stopped and he waited and he's thinking, dare I believe this? Do I step into faith and I believe this? And he asked the same question that many of us do and it's the question that I want you to consider this morning is, what if it is true? Maybe you've already dealt with that. And you're like, I believe it's true. I'm basing my whole eternity on the fact that it's true. By the way, I am. I don't struggle with that. But sometimes I wonder sometimes, <laughs> the resurrection power of Jesus, why doesn't it play out the way that I want it to sometimes? And it leads me to believe, what if it's not true, but what if it is? For the little time that we have left, I want to give you four things that if it is true, this is the reality that we live in. Number one, if it's true, then that means that Jesus has defeated sin. If Easter is true, if the resurrection is true, then that means that Jesus has defeated sin. Ultimately, the resurrection of Christ is the fulfillment of a promise that he had made. It's the fulfillment of prophecy that was made about him for thousands of years leading up to the Messiah. The prophecies of the Messiah that he would be a ransom for humanity and that John the Baptist said that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The crucifixion of Christ fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus the Messiah would redeem us of our sins and set us free from that bondage. See, everyone knew at this point that Jesus was dead because it was like it was the pay-per-view event of the season. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, everyone heard about it. Everyone knew about it. That Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified. Because this was the guy who, when he came into the city just a week before, everyone ran out with palm branches and were crying, Hosanna, save, the Lord save us and save us now. And now just a few days later, he's hanging on a cross. So there's a lot of people who are disappointed. There's a lot of people who had gotten their hopes up that day on Palm Sunday and come crucifixion Good Friday they were destroyed. So everybody knew that Jesus had died, but did his death really accomplish what the Messiah promised to do? And for us to understand that, we need to look at Romans chapter 4. We know Romans well, don't we? Romans chapter 4 says this, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. What's that, what that's telling us is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was verification that God had accepted the payment for our sin. So, so, so what it means is this, is that the debt of our sin had been paid in full because the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the wages, what we owe for our sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. It's always been that. Back in the Old Testament when they had to, when they had to sacrifice and give blood sacrifices, the currency of forgiveness has always been death and shedding of blood of an innocent animal. When Jesus shed his blood, he paid the debt. And so once the debt was paid, there was no more death that needed to be died. And so Jesus rose him from the dead, raised him from, or God rose, raised him from the dead saying that the debt has been paid in full and now life can be lived free of bondage of sin and death. This means that in Christ, our sin debt is paid in full too. We see this a little bit later on in our text in Luke 24 as these two guys are walking home to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified, right? It tells us that as they were walking, Jesus shows up and they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Again, they weren't looking for a resurrected Savior because they were still dwelling on the crucified Savior. And they were walking home and Jesus says, what are you doing? And he basically says to them, why are you so sad? And it says this, it says, we had come and we were disciples and followers of Jesus and we thought he was the Messiah, but it ended up that he's not. And here's what they said in verse 24. 
or 21, it says they were hoping that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. They were hoping that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. See, all their life as good Jewish boys, they'd been told that the Messiah would come and they would redeem Israel and set them free. And so they imagined this political warrior or this warrior king that would set them free from bondage and would set them free from oppression, namely the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus hung on the cross and was killed at the hands of Roman guards and Jewish authorities, it looked like, well, he's not the Messiah. We're still waiting for the true Messiah. When they heard that Jesus died like that, they thought, well, it was a good ride, but he must not have been the one because the Messiah was supposed to overcome, not succumb to the forces that we opposed. You see, the resurrection shows us, though, that our understanding and our designs for Jesus in our lives, they pale in comparison to God's design for what Jesus is really doing. Sometimes we expect things of Jesus that Jesus never promised to do. Sometimes we put things on him thinking that if I just follow Jesus, that means that everything in my life is going to be perfect. It's going to work out just fine. That is not the promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is not follow Jesus and avoid pain. It's follow Jesus and walk through life with him. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And the resurrection proves that Jesus never leaves. He's, he never leaves. He conquered sin and death because the resurrection is true. You see, the resurrection shows that Jesus was up to a whole different kind of redemption. Not a redemption of one nation from another nation of people to give them freedom because political freedom comes and it goes. But spiritual freedom, once it's given to you by God, it never goes away. It's always secure. You see, a redemption that reaches beyond the life that we live now, that we all face in eternity, that kind of redemption, you need more than a warrior who can defeat an army. You need a savior who can defeat sin and its cosmic hold of death on us. So if the resurrection is true, then Jesus has defeated sin and the payment for sin has been paid, which means no more death is needed. The second thing is if it's true, then Jesus has also killed death See, Romans tells us again that the wages of sin is death. But so again, what does sin produce in all of us? It produces death. But since Jesus has defeated sin, he's killed death. And like the song says that we sang this morning, that's when death was arrested and our lives began. Sin holds us in captivity. Sin holds us in bondage. But Jesus' resurrection, when he burst out of that tomb, burst the chains of sin and death and bondage as well in us. But sin holds us in, in, in captivity. This shows up in the form of addictions, broken relationships, pride, fear, anxiety, all of these things that it produces in us because all we know is the way of death. And Paul told the Corinthian church that Jesus' death and resurrection has taken the sting out of death. Uh, this time of year, we see honeybees all around and bumblebees and all that stuff. Anybody afraid of bees? I can promise you, ain't nobody afraid of bees like the Holmes girls are afraid of bees. It, it amazes me how this little thing that flutters around can cause them to go into complete and utter shock, like paralysis, man. I mean, we're talking about paralytic shock, like, what do I do? And the other one just runs around and flits, and I'm like, stop it. And I always try to, I always try to encourage them with this notion. Honey, it's got one sting. Once it stings you, it's going to die. And they're like, well, I don't want to be the one. 
You know, I don't want it to be, if they're going to die, let them die somewhere else. And they're like, let them sting you then, you know. We know this about honeybees. You know what happens when a honeybee stings, why they die? When a, when a stinger leaves the honeybee's body, it then disrupts their whole digestive system. This is great before lunch, by the way. And it causes all of the inner workings of the, of the bee to just basically collapse, and it leads to sudden death and certain death. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible tells us that the resurrection has taken the sting out of death, meaning that Jesus took the sting. Jesus took the stinger, and when he took the stinger, death lost all of its power over us. He took the sting out of it. Will we still face death, physical death? Yes. But the poison and the things that hold us down, it takes the sting out of it. It's all gone. All of the working of sin on us is taken away. And it's restored with the beauty of righteousness and holiness and perfection in Jesus. See, there's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. See, the resurrection of Christ shows its power through us today as well. I want to go back to Mary Magdalene for just a second when she was struggling to accept the resurrection. Let me give you a little bit more background to her. Mary Magdalene, we're told that when Jesus first met her, when she first met Jesus, that she was a woman who had seven, was possessed by seven demons or seven evil spirits. And so I was doing some digging and some studying that phrase right there. It could mean that she literally had seven demons, but it was also a phrase that was used in that culture at that time to say that this is a person who is beyond redemption and beyond hope. Because that, word, that, that number seven in that culture meant it was complete. Meaning that she was possessed by so much evil and so much darkness that that darkness is complete in her and there is no possibility for light. It's said about Mary Magdalene that she probably was possessed or that she was mentally unstable, that she had mental illness and that she engaged in all kinds of immoral acts, probably prostitution and all kinds of things. And for most people, they would look at her that day and say, you're not suited to even speak to, much less to come to a temple to hear about redemption. But then she met Jesus. And Jesus healed each one of those spirits and set her right. He had taken the sting and all of the poison, all of the thing that the stinger was meant to do in her life and had been doing was eradicated and taken away. So when Jesus is standing there in the garden and Mary is still struggling with the resur resurrection and, and not understanding who she was, she's still mad not knowing who it was until one thing happened. Until Jesus calls out to her and says, Mary, in verse number 16 of John chapter 20, Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. She understood. She knew his voice. It was his voice calling out to her that gave her the knowledge of the resurrection. In Luke 8, she found healing in Jesus, and she's the first person that Jesus appears to, and it's the most beautiful scene in the Gospels. Imagine what Mary must have been thinking that day as she's standing outside the tomb, angry and crying. Why do you think she's angry? Probably thinking, now that Jesus is gone, do I go back to my old life? Is the darkness going to consume me again? And then she hears from out of nowhere, Mary. And then she sees the Savior that had set her free. The truth is at that moment that she followed Jesus, she was new. A new creation, recreated, brand new. 
And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're struggling against forces that seem to be way more than you can handle. Maybe at one point you believed and you thought, man, there's nothing better than life with Jesus. But things in your life have made you numb. Things in your life have brought darkness back in and made you think, is there ever going to be hope again? Let me remind you, Jesus still calls your name. He says, come to me, all who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't leave you abandoned. He doesn't leave you to just go back to the darkness of before. Once you are in him and in his resurrection power, you are alive in him forevermore. And I got to move fast. Because number three, if it's true, Jesus will redeem and unravel every tragedy. If it's true about the resurrection of Christ, Jesus will redeem and unravel our every tragedy. I love how one pastor puts it. He says... The resurrection shows that if we're in Christ, then there is a day that is coming when God is going to remove the curse of death entirely from our lives. That he will heal every hurt and he will undo every injustice. And on that day, God will wipe away every tear and he will make all things new. And I love how he puts it. He says, there will be a great reversal ahead. That means that all of the tragedy, all of the sorrow, all of the loss that we've experienced, one day standing before this resurrected Savior on a day that he is appointed, God is going to reverse every single bit of that. He's going to wipe away and reverse every tear. He's going to wipe away and reverse every prayer of crying that we've mentioned to him in sorrow because there will be no more sorrow. It doesn't just mean that we're going to forget it. He's going to reverse it. He's going to turn it backwards. See, even those of us who believe in Christ understand that the shadow of the stinger still hangs over us. The shadow of death still looms over us. We know physically we're going to die. And that hurts when we lose people physically here on earth. It hurts. And it seems like it's devastatingly permanent, like we're going to lose something precious and we're never going to get it back. That's because all we know today is that we can't reverse the sting of death in our power. We can't reverse it. But the resurrection reverses that entire curse. Do we still face the shadow? Absolutely, but it's only a shadow. Because in Christ, death is not defeated by the curse. It is deliverance from the curse. When we die, when our loved ones lose their life in Christ, (laughs) it's not defeat by the curse. It's deliverance from the curse. It's finally being set free from that last vestige of bondage. I love what J.R.R. Tolkien says. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan... J.R.R. Tolkien said this. He says, The resurrection is the promise that one day Jesus will make every sad thing come untrue. The resurrection is the promise that one day Jesus is going to make every sad thing come untrue. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, that his resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. It's the first bloom of life, like in springtime. Like those dogwoods and those cherry blossoms that we see, those are those first fruits. It's the promise of a season of life that is ahead. That's what Easter Sunday is for us. It's that first fruit. It's that promise of life that never ends in Jesus Christ. And just about everyone in this room needs to hear this. That no matter what you've lost in death and in sin and in the flesh, in Christ, Jesus not only restores it, but he reverses the pain of the loss. The resurrection means that there is a day in Christ when it will no longer be true that someone is dead. Did you catch this? The resurrection means that there is a day coming when it will no longer be true that someone is dead. For they will be alive forever and they will be alive forever together. 
All the tragedy and the pain of the curse will be gone and unraveled. All creation will work in beautiful harmony. The Bible says the lion and the lamb will lay down together. It says that babies will play near the cobra's den and no one will be harmed. No one will be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 49 tells us there's going to be a day when your sons and daughters will be brought back to your arms. And that means that parents who go through the tragedy of losing a child before they're supposed to will have them restored on that great day of reversal. Every sad thing comes untrue. Remember what one of the women that went to the tomb was also the woman that sat at the foot of the cross, the mother of Jesus Christ, and she watched her son bleed and die and watched him go away for what she thought was forever. But when he resurrected, that day of reversal happened for her because he was restored to her. Because of the resurrection... In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, when this corruptible body, and our bodies are corruptible, mine is way more corruptible than most people's in here. When it is closed with incorruptibility, this mortal body is closed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Just like Mary, who imagines sitting there watching your son, your baby boy, be beaten and bruised and spit on and die, knowing that he did nothing to deserve it. Probably thinking, I've got some other sons that deserve to be up there, but not my baby boy, Jesus. When Jesus dies, she, the Bible says, stayed at the cross when everyone else left. Why? Because that's what moms do. She stayed at the cross when everyone left. Can you imagine anyone being happier the day the news of the resurrection hit? than the mother of Jesus Christ. The resurrection promises this joy of renewal and restoration and reunion to us. Every mother in Christ who said a tearful goodbye to their child or a spouse who said a tearful goodbye to their wife or to their husband, the resurrection promises to unravel all of that pain and replace it with unmatched joy. And that's when we come to the fourth and final thing, that if it's true, those who trust in Jesus will see their faith made sight. You see, this promise is true for those who believe. Have you ever wondered why it took three days for Jesus to be resurrected? You ever thought about that? I mean, think about the timeline of the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, which means it is finished, meaning that the debt has been paid in full. And then the skies went dark and the temple veil rent in two, meaning that there was no more division between God and man and all these deep theological things that we don't have time to get into. But basically, it summed up to say this, that when Jesus died, the debt was paid. Nothing more needed to be done. So why didn't God resurrect Jesus at that very moment? Why didn't it happen that while the soldiers were taking him down from the cross, he just popped up and said, hey, what's going on, guys? Why didn't that happen? Because the three days of silence, the three days of death, the three days of sorrow, the three days of wandering for his disciples is a metaphor for us. Because we trust Christ in this life, right? We get saved and that means the debt is paid, right? That we are given eternal life, but we still live in this world that's still broken by sin. It means that we're going to go through times where we wonder. We're going to go through times when we wonder if it's true, when it's tough, when we go through sorrow, when we go through sadness, but Jesus promises that I'm always there. The promise that God was still just as much God during those three days Jesus was in the tomb as he was the very moment he came out of it. His promise was still just as sure. So you may be in a point in your life where you feel like your life resembles more of Friday. It's chaos. It's hurt. It's pain. It's hatred all bundled into one. Your life right now may feel like it's Saturday. 
you're praying and you're asking God to move and you feel like there's not a lot going on and you're just wondering, where are you? But I promise you that it may be Friday for you or it may be Saturday for you, but I promise you for each one of us in Christ, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. You feel like your life may look a little bit more like Friday or Saturday. And there's this song that we sing around here that says he's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's the promise keeper. He's the light in the darkness. And he says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. He never stops. He never stops working. Even when Jesus was in the tomb, he was working on finishing and fulfilling the promise that had been made. The resurrection assures us that God doesn't abandon us. Abandon us. Even on Friday, he's with us. Even on Saturday, he's with us. Just as much as he's with us on the day of the resurrection. If there was ever a time that God would have abandoned us, it was at the moment that all of the sins of humanity rested on the shoulders of his son. And he didn't deserve it. God could have turned his back and never turned it back to us again. But he didn't do that. His turning his back on his son was his turning his face towards us in grace. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gives us life everlasting. When you don't see it, when there's no evidence of light in your darkness, God is still working. When it feels like you're sitting in a tomb that's been sealed by a boulder and there's not a ray of light that pierces through, <laughs> Jesus specializes in moving mountains. A boulder is nothing for him. He's the one that we can believe. It may seem like nonsense. It may seem too good to be true. But if it is true, it is so good. It's good beyond good. It's the goodest thing you'll ever know of good things in life. As we close out this morning, I want to go back to John really fast. All right. Notice I said John really fast because he ran really fast. You get that? All right. Yeah. Puns always around here, right? Remember him sprinting all the way to the tomb, beating everyone there, too afraid to go in, too afraid to get his hopes up, too afraid to embrace the resurrection. That might be you today, still thinking, I don't know if I can step into that. Look what the Bible says happens in verse number six. It says, then following him, Simon Peter also came and entered the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. So Peter goes into the tomb and finds the cloth, right? He finds all of that. That's fine at that place. He finds all of that, okay? But standing outside, here's John wondering if he should go in. And then in verse number eight, it says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in. Notice this. And he saw and he believed. He made the step. He went in. He drew near to the truth of the resurrection. He came face to face with the power and the truth of Jesus and he believed. Here's something that I'm convinced of today. I'm convinced of this, that you have to come to grips with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to come to saving faith in him. You have to. The cross gets a lot of the press, and it should. Jesus suffered for us and suffered for our sins. But the symbol of freedom, the symbol of our freedom, is the empty tomb. The hope that we have is the empty tomb. The resurrection gives us no other option than to believe in the resurrection. So if we only focus on the cross, we're left with a faith that is still marked and shrouded in death. Our sins are forgiven, but what about the next sin? What about the sin after that? The resurrection is what gives our faith and our power and our hope. So is it too good to be true? 
No, it's not too good to be true. The truth is that you'll never know good until you come to this truth. You'll never know what is good until you come to the truth. What if John stayed outside and was still wrestled with his faith? He'd have lived that constant PTSD of what he saw at the cross. But instead he stepped in and he saw the beauty of the resurrection and all the sorrow of the cross melted away. That's the option for us today. What will we do? Will we do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We have to come to him. Ancient theologian Beatty uh, says this. He says, those who refuse to believe in the triumph of Christ's resurrection continue to be like a tomb that is still closed behind a stone, dead in darkness and in unbelief. So don't let that be you. Don't live your life behind that tomb. See, the believer, we have to live in the light of the resurrection. And so this morning, as we bow our head this morning, we close our eyes and we go to a time of prayer. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.